This is Age of Treason Radio. On the White Network. Daddy always smiled, took me by the hand, saying, Someday you'll understand. Well, I'm here to tell you now that you never mother stone. You better like it fast, you better like it young, cause someday it never comes. With your host, Tan Stoffel. Murder of Mary Fagan, Part 11. This will be the last part. I'll sum up my impression of the case and what I've learned at the end. I'll pick up where I left off the last time talking about Governor Slayton's commutation letter. As I mentioned previously, there is almost two parts to Slayton's letter. It's not literally divided into two parts. There are several sections, but what I saw was two different attitudes. In the first part, uh, Slayton outlined the state's case, and I read the last time selections from that initial part of his letter. But as his letter went on, his doubt, or what he was trying to explain as doubt, or causing doubt, uh, became clearer. The evidence of, that the prosecution had presented, though, he, he did a good job of presenting, and contrary to um, Carlos Porter, he presented evidence and acknowledged that there was evidence that had nothing to do with Jim Conley. Uh, the testimony of Montine Stover, the Frank Housekeeper, Manola McKnight and her husband, and uh, Frank's own mishandling of Newt Lee's time slip, which seemed to imply that uh, Frank was up to no good trying to frame Newt Lee. It was really in the section that Slayton titled Jim Conley that it became clear that he was trying to find an excuse to commute Frank's sentence and where he was trying to note that there should have been doubt in the case or that there was doubt in the, uh, in the, in the guilt of Frank. Uh, he acknowledged that Conley was, he called him the most startling and sp spectacular evidence was presented by Conley. But in that section, he also did note one more reason why it was reasonable to suspect Frank. He said, Frank put his character in issue, and the state introduced ten witnesses attacking Frank's character, some of whom were factory employees who testified that Frank's reputation for lasciviousness was bad, and some told that he had been making advances to Mary Fagan, whom Frank professed to the detectives either not to have known or to have been only slightly acquainted with. Other witnesses testified that Frank had improperly gone into the dressing room of the girls. So for the defenders of Frank who make a big deal out of Jim Conley's bad character, there was also testimony in the case as to Leo Frank's bad character. And Slayton says that the above, everything that he discussed, states very briefly the gist of the state's case, but omits many 
incidents which the state claims would confirm Frank's guilt when taken in their entirety. And that's how a jury is supposed to decide a case on its entirety, not based on one little thing out of place. Next, Slayton provides a section he titles Defense, uh, where he fleshes out his doubts further. And it's almost all related to Conley's testimony. But again, contrary to what uh, Carlos Porter argues, Slayton and the other legal minds involved in the case were well aware of the limits on Jim Conley as an accessory to the murder, an accessory after the fact, and held his testimony in that light to a limited degree that, that he had whatever he said had to be collaborated by others and or either by ev- physical evidence or by the testimony of other people who weren't uh, suspected of involvement in the crime. Um, Slayton considered it likely that Conley had lied about Frank dictating notes and also about where the notes were written. And that's the major portion of the doubt that he cites. He says that the uh, these there were some notes that Conley had written to another woman that he had been in jail with uh, while he was uh, awaiting the trial, and that this he thought the contents of these notes provided powerful evidence in behalf of the defendant Frank uh, because it showed that Conley was the real author of the murder notes because of the way he talked, spoke in those notes, and in the death notes, the similarities there. And he noted that these, this evidence was not put before the jury that decided against Leo Frank. But I would say to that that he seems to be assuming then that the jury might have changed their minds based on that. And I think, is it, is it reasonable, really, to assume that the jury didn't also consider the possibility that Conley was lying on those points about the notes. After all, in court, he did admit that he wrote the notes, and that seems to be the most earth-shattering argument that Conley was the murderer, is that he wrote the notes. But the jury was well aware that he wrote the notes. The claim that he was, that, that Frank dictated them. Did the jury convict Frank only because they thought that he had dictated the notes? Or might they have assumed that that was just a lie and not cared because it, the the rest of the argument still made sense? And uh, in fact, that's uh, what my notes say here too. In in response to Slayton's uh, detailed recounting of where the notes were written and his argument uh, as to the fact that they must have been written down in the basement where the body was found, and not up in Leo Frank's office, as Jim Conley claimed. The jury realized that Conley was a liar. That was never debated in court. The uh, prosecution acknowledged it. Conley acknowledged it. So it's not really a leap of logic to assume that the jury would have taken everything that he said, just as Slayton uh, said, that everything that Conley said had to be essentially taken with a grain of salt. 
uh, Slayton writes, The evidence shows that Conley was as depraved and lecherous a Negro as ever lived in the state of Georgia. I think I've cited that before. And the reason that's worth citing is because Slayton thought that, and yet he still didn't claim to think that that meant that Conley was the murderer and Frank was innocent. Slayton also acknowledged, he says, why the Negro wrote the notes is a matter open to conjecture. He had been drinking heavily that morning, and it is possible that he undertook to describe the other Negro in the building so that it would avert suspicions. So this goes to uh, Carlos Porter's rhetorical questions about why in the world would anyone write such notes? Well, it turns out that Slayton, who Carlos Porter points to, as the reason why he thinks the way he does and why he argues the way he does, Slayton actually did consider it, and uh, it says it's open to conjecture. You know, as it is, who knows exactly why? But it's not that uh, it's not possible to come up with reasonable conjectures. Now, this is all getting to Slayton's final conclusion, which he put in a section titled "Judiciary" at the end of his letter, and in. He ended up commuting Frank's sentence based on a technicality, what us lay people would call a technicality in the law. Uh, what he purported was that a procedural mistake had been made in the original trial at the very end, and it was that he thought the judge had thought that he had to sentence Frank to death if the verdict was guilty. And Slayton claimed that that according to the law, was not true, that he could have, because it was a case based on circumstantial evidence, that the judge could have also sentenced the defendant to life in prison if he thought that there was enough doubt to do so. But he Slayton made this argument about doubt existing that he himself had already emphasized that neither the judge nor the jury at the time knew. So he seems to be undermining his own argument that the judge should have known there was enough doubt to say that there was a uh, a reason to to sentence him only to life in prison rather than death. So it's really based on this technicality that the judge misspoke when he told the jury that if you convict Frank, I'm going to have to sentence him to uh, death by hanging. He probably the judge Roan. Uh, probably should not have said that. And then in, in the final commutation where he declares what he's going to do, Slayton claims that, that Judge Roan would have agreed with the change in the sentence. I guess uh, the judge had died in between in the, in the year and a half or so, or two years since the, almost two years since the sentence had been handed down. Um but he acknowledged that he didn't think that the jury necessarily would have changed their verdict against Frank, only that they might have uh, rendered a verdict with the recommendation of mercy, meaning life in prison, which is what uh, Governor Slayton uh, changed it to. And Slayton's letter was dated the 21st of June, 1915, as I say, almost uh, two years after Frank was tried and, and convicted. Now, at the same 
about the same time, six months earlier in uh, January of 1915, I found a, a newspaper article from the Kansas City Star that uh, I think is notable titled, Did Leo Frank Dictate the Murder Notes? An Analysis. And it's notable because it uh, prefigures Slayton's arguments about there being these factors, these things that about uh, doubt about Conley, uh, Conley's claims that Frank dictated the notes and where the notes were written. But it argues in a Carlos Porter style, meaning it, it argues in this sort of emotional absolute certainty it's because of this doubt about where the notes were written and conley was such a liar and he's such a bad negro uh therefore leo frank must be innocent that kind of that's what i mean by a, a carlos porter type of argument and in fact it, what it demonstrates i think is that people have been making the kind of arguments that carlos porter makes the whole time for a hundred years they've been making it. what carlos porter argues isn't anything new there's nothing New or or and there's no significant uh, argument that he adds that hasn't already been made. Uh, just a few notes from this uh, old newspaper article: Jim Conley, the Negro, murdered Mary Fagan. It says absolutely. Uh, he has he described how he slew her in the two notes he wrote and laid beside her body. Conley is a low, dissolute, brutal Negro. But the thing is, of course, that Conley's bad character was well established during the trial. And I think that that's a two-edged sword, that it, it reflects poorly on Frank because he was employed at Frank's discretion. If Frank knew that he was such a bad Negro, why didn't he fire him? And if he didn't know he was such a bad Negro, what kind of boss was he to keep that uh, person around and not be aware? So basically, the more questionable you make the, the more you call Conley's character into question, the more you uh, question Frank's character indirectly. Uh, further on in the article, it says, now mark this, it is proof of Frank's innocence. And it, it goes on to talk about how the paper the, and the, that the uh, notes were written on was probably down in the basement. And that's, that means probably that the notes were written in the basement. This disproves absolutely the story of the Negro that the notes were written in Frank's office. Uh, it doesn't really disprove it absolutely. It's just strong evidence that the notes were written in the basement. They could have been written outside the building and then brought back in. I mean, even if the paper came from the basement. So, I mean, and where the notes were written is not really so critical to the overall prosecution case and or even to Jim Conley's story that he worked for Leo Frank. Leo Frank committed the murder. Leo Frank enlisted Conley uh, to help him get rid of the body, which he didn't do. So, you know, the, where the notes were written and, and exactly the circumstances behind that don't seem all that critical to the overall uh, story. It means that Conley was a liar, which everyone knew. Now, they conclude by saying that the, story, the Negro story is so incredible, so absurd, so inconsistent with all the facts that one wonders that anyone should believe a word of it. And this is in direct contrast to what Governor Slayton actually had to say about Conley. Now, he agreed with Conley about 
uh, with them about Conley's character. He, he said that the evidence shows that Conley was as depraved and lecherous a Negro as ever lived in the state of Georgia. But he had the opposite conclusion from this article about Conley's credibility. He had Con, um, Governor Slayton had written, it is hard to conceive that any man's power of fabrication of minute details could reach that which Conley showed unless it be the truth. In other words, that the testimony that Conley had given was so complicated and and uh, so consistent that it had to have be re- a reflection of the truth. And it's the exact opposite of what the uh, the newspaper article, the Carlos Porter style argument, uh, argues. Now, as fitting for this conclusion here of wrapping up my discussion of this uh, murder and, and the trial afterward, I, I want to finish up by uh, discussing a bit the four main attorneys in the case, the two prosecutors and the two defense attorneys, and their closing arguments, the statements that they made, uh, which were um, probably the best uh, best summed up the case. And uh, since that's what I'm trying to do, this is a good uh, source to go to, and, and I'm only going to touch on the high points here. I'll provide a link to uh, where I uh, got these from. Uh, Frank Hooper, which was one of the prosecutors, uh, said, You will notice that the defense has pitched its every effort entirely on Jim Conley. I don't blame them. He was like Stone Mountain is to some highways in its vicinity. Uh, Stone Mountain is a big mountain in the Atlanta area. They couldn't get by him. We could have left him out and have had an excellent chain of circumstantial evidence. Later on, Hooper says, All they could say was that Jim had been a big liar. That is true. Reuben Arnold, one of the defense attorneys, said, uh, well, he made a, uh, an issue of the fact that Frank was a Jew. I'll tell you right now, if Frank hadn't been a Jew, there would have never would never have been any prosecution against him. And then he also uh, made it an issue of basically Frank's word against Conley's word. He said, "You know what sort of a man Conley is, and you know that up to the time the murder was committed, no one ever heard a word against Frank." He also said, in circumstantial cases, you can't convict a man as long as there's any other possible theory for the crime of which he is accused. And you can't find Frank guilty if there's a chance that Conley is the murderer. The state has nothing on which to base their case but Conley, and we've shown Conley a liar. So this is uh, this captures a couple of elements that I've talked about. Basically, here is the defense attorney putting it right in the jury's face, meaning that the jury was well aware of this that they couldn't convict Frank unless they were absolutely sure that they were absolutely convinced by the uh, prosecution's case that he was the one who was guilty. So they had this in mind when they decided unanimously that Frank was guilty. It was not that they were unaware of it. And uh, I think it's very likely that they did understand that Conley was a liar. So, uh, Reuben Arnold's making that point that they had shown Conley was a liar was not even in dispute. At this point in the trial, it had already been established that Conley was a liar. It just wasn't all that clear about what he was saying, 
what of what he was saying was a lie and what wasn't. And that was left in the jury's hands to decide, and the jury did decide. Luther Rosser, who was the head defense attorney and was actually the first attorney that was hired, he's the one who was hired uh, the day after the uh, the murder was discovered. Uh, his statement was almost incoherent, and uh, it, it's remarkable just how uh, incoherent it is, and you have to really read it yourself to appreciate what I'm saying. It, it's, it seems to leap from one thing to another, and you, you almost can't make sense of it. I, probably some of that has to do with the fact that it's you know, in the context of this uh, long, drawn-out uh, case and, and hinging on details that the people there would have been familiar with, more familiar with even than me uh, and my listeners here who have been uh, following this case. It, uh, the fact that even after following it and the, the level of detail I have, that I have trouble uh, following uh, his Luther Rosser's argument. But one thing that stands out pretty clearly is is the way he tries to basically incite uh, racial animosity. And uh, here's a section, uh, an example of it. I was raised with niggers and know something about them. I do not know them as well as the police, perhaps, for they know them like no one else. But I know something about them. There must have been a nigger in the crime who knew about it before Newt or anyone else. I'm afraid Newt knew. Now, what he's implying there... Uh, based on the earlier paragraph, too, is that Newt Lee, the night watchman who was first suspected, who discovered the body and was first suspected, was arrested and was eventually cleared. Uh, he's implying here, and I don't think any evidence was really uh, presented by the defense. It wasn't their obligation to do so. But he's implying that Newt Lee was also an accomplice, was an accessory to the crime in some way. He thought He's implying, Luther Rosser is implying that Newt Lee was working with Jim Conley, was uh, was Jim Conley's accessory in the murder, basically. That's the best I can put it together. Uh, the thing that arises, he says later, in this case, to fatigue my indignation is that men born of such parents, he's talking now about the uh, the prosecutor, prosecuting attorneys, Men born of such parents should believe the statement of Conley against the statement of Frank. Who is Conley? Who was Conley as he used to be and as you have seen him? He was a dirty, filthy, black, drunken, lying nigger. Black knows that. Starnes knows that. Chief Beavers knows it. Who was it that made this dirty nigger come up here looking so slick? Why didn't they let you see him as he was? They shaved him, washed him, and dressed him up. Cut out Conley, skipping a little further on, cut out Conley and you strip the case to nothing. Did you hear the way Conley told his story? Have you heard and have you ever heard an actor who knew his Shakespearean plays, his Merchant of Venice and his Hamlet? He can wake up any time in the night and say those lines, but he can't say any lines of a play he has never learned. So he's basically saying that Jim Conley is like a uh, an actor, a Shakespearean actor. Uh, what a stretch that is. Um, he goes on basically to imply, actually he states it pretty bluntly, that Conley was coached, that Conley was told what to say by the prosecutors, by the investigators, by the detectives, that it was a setup, that, that uh, it, Jim Conley didn't 
think of any of the things that he testified to, that it was somebody else telling him what to do, which is a little ironic now that I think about it, because that's he claimed that Frank dictated the notes and it wasn't him. And, you know, I acknowledge that's probably bogus, but this is just as bogus or more bogus. The idea that the prosecution told him uh, in great detail what to say trained him. He, he actually says, was it fair for two skilled white men to train that Negro by the hour and by the day and teach him and then get a statement from him and call it the truth? And then he goes on to call uh, black, uh, the uh, sheriff uh, professors, uh, black and, and Scott. Um, Scott was the uh, private detective, the, the uh, Pinkerton man that, that Frank hired. Uh, he calls uh, Dorsey, Professor Dorsey, you know, as in being professors, teachers to this, uh, to Jim Conley, the uh, witness against Frank. Was it fair to take this weak, pliable Negro and have these white men teach him one after the other? The final uh, closing argument is you, Dorsey's, and I already talked about this in the uh, early on in this series about just how overwhelming uh, I thought that this case was and that this was a big part of it. You, you Dorsey's, excuse me, you Dorsey's closing statement was this uh, nine hours in total. It took three days apparently to, uh, to deliver or most of three days. And um, it's very, very long. And I'm, I, I'm not going to read it all. I'm not even going to read large sections of it, but I did want to cite one section that I thought, uh, was uh, very interesting right toward the beginning of it, if you want to read it for yourself. He he notes uh, prejudice and perjury, basically. That's how he sums up the defense's uh, defense, is that they accuse the prosecution of prejudice and Jim Conley, in particular, of perjur- perjury. Uh, he's, uh, this is Hugh Dorsey. says, Gentlemen, do you think that I or that these detectives are actuated by prejudice. And then he points out the defense was the first to mention race. He says, now let's see about this thing. These gentlemen were disappointed because this case wasn't pitched on that theory. Not a word emanated from this side, not a word indicating any feeling against, any prejudice against any human being, black or white, Jew or Gentile. We didn't feel it. We would despise ourselves if we had appeared in this presence and asked you to render a verdict against any man, black or white, Jew or Gentile, on account of prejudice. A little further on, he has a section titled, Tribute to the Jewish Race. I say to you here and now that the race from which this man comes, and he must be pointing at Leo Frank, is as good as our race. His ancestors were civilized when ours were cutting each other up and eating human flesh. His race is just as good as ours, just as good, but no better. And he goes on in quite some detail, uh, noting uh, supposed Jews of supposed good character and, and Jews, including uh, Schwartz, who I talked about earlier, the murderer in New York just a year earlier, who had uh, killed a girl and, and uh, cut her up very badly in New York City and then uh, admitted to the crime and killed himself. So now, in conclusion uh, of this part and of the entire series really it comes down to and I think this is a fair description especially in light of the closing arguments of these all four of these attorneys is that there were two overarching explanations of the case and that these two explanations 
these opposing explanations, the one made by the prosecution, one made by the defense, were fleshed out and debated and decided on a hundred years ago. And many of the arguments ever since have been basically of one side or the other. Either Frank murdered Fagan, and to defend himself, he tried, among other things, to frame Newt Lee and then Jim Conley. Or Conley murdered Fagan and then framed Frank with the aid of the police, the private detective Frank hired, the prosecutors, and all 12 men on the jury. After looking into the details of this case, I agree with the decision that the jury arrived at 100 years ago. The evidence and the argument that Frank murdered Mary Fagan has more merit than any other explanation. It not only better fits the evidence, but better explains why the prosecution proceeded as they did and the jury decided as they did, in spite of Jim Conley's bad character. That Conley was a depraved, lecherous, brutal, lying Negro as ever lived in the state of Georgia does not imply Frank could not have been the murderer. Why does anyone argue as if it does? Because they have no better argument to make. 